John chapter two, beginning in verse 12, it says, after this, he that is Jesus went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The Gospel of John paints a portrait of Jesus with amazing contrasts. So far, we have seen Jesus, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word made flesh. The Lamb of God, the miracle winemaker. And now Jesus will go from lamb to lion. Jesus leaves the house of men and he will now head for the house of God. Jesus will witness the abuses that are taking place in the temple, in his father's house. And he will cleanse the temple. By the way, there are two cleansings of the temple mentioned in Scripture. One at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that's located here in John chapter 2. Another at the end of Jesus' ministry located in Mark chapter 11 and also in Matthew chapter 21 verses 12 and 13. I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't attempt to cleanse the Roman Senate. He doesn't march to Rome and, and drive out the senators. He doesn't cleanse the Jewish Sanhedrin. He doesn't cleanse the public marketplaces. He doesn't cleanse the false Greek temples. He doesn't cleanse the pagan brothels. Jesus cleanses the temple. And in cleansing the temple, Jesus begins to focus on the priorities that make for true worship for prayer, for personal purity, for God's presence, for God's power. My friend John Corson contrasts chapter two in his excellent commentary on this passage 
I quote him, quote, in verse seven, Jesus quietly met a need. In verse 14, he conspicuously caused a scene. In verse two, Jesus sat at the marriage table. In verse 15, Jesus overturns the temple tables. At Cana, Jesus creates the wine of joy. In the temple, he initiates the work of judgment, unquote. I like that. It is interesting in the wedding feast at Cana, Jesus uses human instruments. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus acts alone. At the wedding feast of Cana, Jesus supplies the wine. In the temple, Jesus scourges the moneylenders. When Jesus made wine, he was complimented. When Jesus <laughs> cleanses the temple, he's challenged. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? People are happy when you talk about the joy of Jesus. But the moment Jesus shows up and has an expectation, the moment that Jesus shows up and says, guess what? I want your heart to be a little bit different. I want your thinking to be different. I want your mouth to be different. There are challenges. Whoa, wait a minute. Hey, I'll go to church and I'll read my Bible. I'll even stuff a shoebox full of toys for a needy child. But who said anything about change? When Jesus turned water into wine, he manifested his glory in verse 11. When Jesus cleanses the temple, he manifests his zeal, according to verse 17. You know, people tend to gravitate towards the gentle Jesus. Remember when you're a child, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Look upon this. You know, the rest. But when Jesus comes with a whip, with a broom, with a demand, with a call to purity, to a prohibition from those things that defile you, people balk, they complain, they challenge and they question whether or not Jesus has the right to make that kind of demand. Look at Jesus purging the temple again in verses 12 through 17. We begin with verse 12. After this, he went down to Kephar Nahum or Capernaum. When you're in the Galilee and you're coming from Cana, you go through winding hills as you make your way down to the shores of the Galilee. He, his mother, his brothers and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. The Lord Jesus would establish Capernaum as his ministry headquarters during his earthly ministry. We find that in Matthew chapter four, verse 13, and in Matthew chapter nine, verse one. If you have any familiar familiarity with the Middle East at all, that strip of land that we call Israel or Palestine or the Palestinian coast is very much like California. It has mountains and it has deserts and it has a beach. Now, many of you, like me, come from Southern California. If you had the chance to live in the Mojave Desert with dirt cactus, or you can live in Balboa by the beach, where are you going to pick your ministry headquarters? Well, Jesus picks Capernaum. This city had a synagogue. 
That synagogue, by the way, we know from the New Testament, was built by a Roman centurion and Jesus taught in that synagogue. We also know that Capernaum had a Roman garrison. It also had a Roman customs house and the customs house was a place where they would gather taxes. And you'll notice also it says after this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, speaking of Mary, his brothers and his disciples. The brothers are mentioned first because they are flesh and blood brothers. Now, some scholars have suggested that these brothers were children of Joseph from a previous marriage or that they are cousins. That is Mary's sister's children. But nothing in the New Testament would seem to indicate that that's true. Here, the brothers are very much connected to Jesus through his mother. As a matter of fact, over in nine other places, we are told that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because the Bible teaches that Mary and Joseph, after the birth of Jesus, continued to have normal marital relations as a normal husband and wife would have. Also, we learn something interesting from John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 5. It says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Have you ever fantasized about going back in time and being able to grow up with Jesus in the home of Jesus? There's Mary. There's Joseph. You're a child. You're a brother or a sibling of Jesus. You grow up with Jesus and you, you must be thinking, well, if I was there, I'm certain that I would believe that Jesus is the Lord. Well, really, his brothers didn't. And this is interesting because once again, John is contrasting belief and unbelief. By the way, Jesus's brothers won't believe in him until after his death and resurrection. And look at verse 13. It says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the New Testament, John's gospel mentions three Passovers here in chapter two, verses 12 and 13. There's a second Passover mentioned in chapter six, verse four, which Jesus does not attend or he doesn't attend it publicly and openly. And a third Passover that's mentioned in chapter 12, verse one, and in chapter 13, verse one, it is from John's gospel that we understand that the ministry of Jesus lasted three years and by the way, the Passover was celebrated once a year on the 14th day of Nisan. This is between March and April at the time of the full moon. The Jews would select a lamb on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. Each family selected a lamb or a kid that was without spot or blemish, a male of the first year. They slaughtered the lamb on the night of the Passover between three o'clock in the afternoon and six o'clock in the evening of the feast. Now, remember, Passover commemorates the deliverance of the children of Israel from the bondage, the servitude, the slavery of Pharaoh and the Egyptians when the angel of death passes over the Jewish homes and the firstborn are spared. Blood was sprinkled on the doorposts, according to Exodus chapter 12, verses 23 through 27. 
The lamb was roasted whole. No bones were broken. It was immediately followed by the feast of unleavened bread, which lasted a week. It would take place from Nisan 15 all the way to Nisan 22. Now, Jews from all parts of the diaspora, from Babylon, from North Africa, from around the Mediterranean rim, they would come to Jerusalem. And on the eve of the Passover, the head of each house would carefully remove all the leaven from the home. Most of you know that leaven in the Bible is a type and a picture of sin. They do a spring literally cleaning. They remove the sin. It becomes a type and a picture of cleansing and purity before you enter into the time of the feast. And by the way, you'll notice something else chilling about the passage. In verse 13, it says now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. It's telling the Old Testament never referred to the Passover as the Passover of the Jews. It was the Passover of Jehovah. It was the Passover of the Lord. It was the feast of the Lord. So why is it called the feast of the Jews in our text? I suspect because for many it it had become a, a religious ritual. You simply show up and you go through the motions. There is a careful, symbolic orchestration of removal from of of sin from your life and from the life of your home. But what about God's house? What about getting rid of the sin in the empty ritual worship of God's house? The New Testament indicates the spiritual condition of both priests and people during the ministry of Jesus as being filled with hypocrisy of prayerlessness, of merchandising, of hollow, empty, ritual religion. And look what it says in verse 14. And he, Jesus, found in the temple those who sold Oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. This is the temple of the Jews. This is the temple of worship. This is the temple on the temple mount. The temple was the seat of worship and sacrifice. By the way, this is the temple that was built by Solomon and King Tyre or the king of Tyre, a man named Hiram. Solomon built the temple in about seven and a half years. It stood on Mount Moriah. This is the place where Abraham offered his son Isaac. This is the temple mount, the place that was selected by God himself. And descriptions of the temple are given in 1 Kings chapter 6 and in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Two words are translated temple in the New Testament. There is one word that is translated from the word hieron. If we were to anglicize it, it would be H-I-E-R-O-N. And that's the word that's used here. It is the word that would describe the temple precinct. In other words, it would talk about the whole place 
from the gates that surrounded the city to the temple precinct. And then the series of gates and porches that surrounded the temple, the the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women and the court of the men. The temple proper, if you will. Now, another word would speak of the sacred enclosure. It's the word naos. It's N-A-O-S. And this was the word that was used to describe the holy place. It was the temple itself and the holy of holies, which contained the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the temple proper had on the outside a place called the stoa or the marketplace. And the merchants were selling sacrificial animals at inflated prices. Jews were required to bring an offering. They were also required to pay a tax once a year. It was called the temple tax. Every male Jew over the age of 19 would present a half shekel. Now, the half shekel was made of about 93% silver. It was minted in Tyre. Later, it was minted in Jerusalem. And it was the only money that was accepted on the Temple Mount. And so, some Bible scholars have suggested that in order to change the money, you would have people from Ptolemy, from the northern part of Egypt, uh, which would have the, the shek- or uh, uh, what's they're known as tetradrams of Ptolemy. In Assyria, they had the, the tetradrams of, of Seleucus. In, in Italy, they had um, the, the denarii of the Romans. And so all of this money from all over the empire would need to be exchanged. And by the way, a half shekel, well, let me put it to you this way, a shekel was one week's wage for a skilled craftsman. A half shekel was a half a week's wage for a skilled craftsman. When they would come, some Bible scholars suggest that, for instance, a pair of doves, which would normally cost a nickel or a dime, they would charge $4 for it. Or they would bring sheep. Goats, oxen, doves, but they would have to be without spot. But the people who are doing the examination would always seem to find some irregularity. You know, the the teeth on your sheep don't look exactly right. Oh, look at this. I found a black spot inside of his ear. Guess what? We have something that will work for you that has already been pre-approved by the rabbi. But I drug the sheep all the way from, from Tyre, from the northern part of the Galilee. That's okay. For a slight charge, we will give you an acceptable sacrifice. And when they would exchange the money, there was always a transaction fee. And that transaction fee would be outrageous. And so, part of the challenge is this. In Mark chapter 11, verse 17, later, Jesus will say, then he taught them saying, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. 
The focus in Mark's gospel is the misrepresentation of the worship of God to the weary pilgrims. He says, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord was making an impression and he was reminding the people that the purpose of worship and the purpose of sacrifice, you're to not misrepresent God. People would come from all over the known world and they would come to Jerusalem and they would ask the question, what kind of a God is God and can I know God and can I worship God? And so part of the challenge that's taking place right before the cleansing is the misrepresentation. Unscrupulous vendors would take advantage of pilgrims and they would sometimes deceive and abuse people. The temple was surrounded by the series of courts. The court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the men, the court of the priests, also known as the inner court or the court of Israel. No woman or Gentile could enter into the court of Israel. The court of the woman was located on the east side on a lower level. Undefiled men and their wives could enter into the court. And by the way, the court of the women had four gates. And in those four gates... There was a gate on each side and within the court of the women was also the treasury of the temple. Do you know what that means? Gentiles in the court of the men could not go into the court of the women and put money into the treasury. We one of the reasons why we know this, too, is from the New Testament. You know, the story. Remember, in the court of the women, a, a woman comes and she has two mites, two tiny copper coins, and she places it into the temple treasury. You know, the story. Remember, Jesus says she gave more than all of uh, the religious people who would come and gave because they gave out of their abundance, but she gave everything. It's interesting to me because what that would mean is that Gentiles couldn't really give. They couldn't really go into the court of the women and they couldn't offer money. The Lord was interested in how Judaism and how particularly the sacrifice was represented to a watching world. What kind of a God is God and what kind of a person do you have to be to have a relationship with God and fellowship with God? Imagine it's rodeo time at the stock show. And instead of having praise in the park, we all go down to the stockyards of Denver and we are going to have church down there. And imagine we're having church at the Denver Stockyards and you're hearing, now turn in your Bible to John chapter 2 and you hear, eh, we got a sheep and I'm going to go sheep and I'm going to go to and I'm going to go to and I'm going to go and you're going, it's really hard to concentrate when you're sell- selling cattle and sheep right in the middle of the church service. Can you imagine the Gentiles have come from all over the place and they want to worship and know God. And all of a sudden you go, get your popcorn, get your kosher popcorn, get your kosher dogs, get your cotton candy and kosher dogs. It's really hard to have church. And so Jesus is going to cleanse the temple. And look what it says in verse 15. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple 
with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overturned the tables. These cords were probably used to direct or drive the cattle and the sheep that were already in the stoa or the marketplace. The whip of cords is not so much an instrument of, of Christ's anger, but an emblem of his mercy and his warning. You might be wondering, well, how do you come up with that? The rod is in his hand, but love remains in his heart because Jesus will come again and he won't have a scourge in his hand. He'll have a sword in his hand. I don't think it's any coincidence. That Jesus, before he died. Was scourged. Before he was crucified. And the temple was cleansed before it was destroyed. This isn't a miracle, but an act of authority. I want you to understand something. Jesus does not simply speak, but he uses the scourge to rebuke and discipline. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. He uses the scourge to rebuke and discipline. The scourge becomes an instrument to bring about purity and to bring about cleansing. Jesus drives them out of the stoa, the marketplace, the court of the Gentiles. And by the way, the Greek word translated drive is very interesting. It means to drive, but not so much by force. It isn't him driving them out and beating them and whipping them and kicking them. But it seems to indicate by sheer authority. Let me give you an example. Imagine there's a car accident over on Wadsworth and you see the lanes that are being blocked and you see police officers are on either side and you see a police officer, you see his uniform, you see his badge, you see him directing traffic. Do you follow the officer's instructions? Yes, you do. You might say, I have a big SUV and I can run them right down. But you don't. You recognize his authority or her authority and you respond to his authority or her authority. That seems to be part of the point here. Jesus faces the merchandise mart and the merchants, their face on fire with greed, their desire to make money. And Jesus compels them against their interest to fly simply by waving the scourge. Now, in one sense, that's a miracle. It, it would be like upon Thanksgiving Day, you get up at four o'clock in the morning. I don't know how crazy you'd have to be to do something like that. And you go to, to Kohl's or Nordstrom's, you go to on Black Friday, you show up at four o'clock in the morning at the Southwest Plaza or at Park Meadows Mall. Imagine you're at Park Meadows Mall and there is Jesus at the door with a scourge of whips. And all of a sudden Nordstrom is cleared out. All they do is just see him. They just see him and they leave. Now, my friends, that's a miracle. 
Can you imagine panic stricken? The merchants run aware that someone with authority is making them leave. You know what I'm going to suggest to you? Jesus is giving them a sneak preview. A glimpse into their own future. Of a man who is both king and judge. When Jesus shows up. With a whip in his hand. My advice to you. Whatever he tells you to do. Do it. There are those people. There are those people who have made the stupidest remark. I can't wait to die. I'm going to give Jesus a piece of my mind. Really? Is that what you're going to do? Imagine yourself standing before the throne of glory. Occupied by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lord, and the creator of the universe. And before you is the being who will ultimately judge you. And by the way, that's exactly what the New Testament says. Jesus said concerning himself that the Father has given to him all authority, both in heaven and on earth. Your eternal destiny lies in the hands and the heart of Jesus Christ. Jesus is meek and mild and lowly. But when he raises his hand, do what he says. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, the Lord whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi predicted that the Lord would appear in the temple and he would show up. And when he showed up, the whole world would be different. You realize that that's exactly what's happening. Jesus is now fulfilling that prophecy. He comes into the temple. The whole world is different. And by the sheer force of his presence and authority, they flee. Jesus refines like silver in the fire. Jesus refines and purifies and cleanses the individual, the family, the nation. And like trespassers on his father's property, they're simply asked. Not simply asked to leave. They are commanded to leave. The same Jesus who brings joy earlier in the chapter now brings cleansing. Purifying. Do you realize that sometimes Jesus will show up and he will say, there's some things in your life that I need to be a little bit different. I need your heart to be different. I need your speech to be different. I need the way that you live to be different. And you're frustrated, even upset. Lord, I've tried to change. And I'm finding it difficult in this particular area of my life. And I want to remind you that the living Lord Jesus comes into your heart and into your life. And he begins to drive out those things that have no business being there. And look what it says in verses 16 and 17. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten 
me up. Another translation at the end where it says zeal for your house has eaten me up can read passion for your house will devour me. Jesus says, take away the doves. Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. I mean, I come to the church and I walk through the doors and there's the open door cafe and I smell burritos. I smell Spanish rice. Doesn't that mean that you're making the house of the Lord a house of merchandise? Look, in order to have a right relate, if I said in order to have a right relationship with God, you have to eat a burrito, then yeah. You, you don't have to eat a burrito to have a right relationship with the, with the Lord. And by the way, let's just get real here. This used to be an Albertson supermarket. It's cement block. This is not the temple. This is a place where we gather. It used to be a grocery store. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the true temple, the real temple, is you. Paul writes in Corinthians, don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you understand that the temple of God is the place where the Holy Spirit resides inside of your heart? Jesus refers to the temple as my father's house. Do you realize these are the same words that John will well, that Jesus will later use in John's gospel in chapter 14 when he has one week to live and he looks at his disciples and he says to his disciples, I am going to go and I am going to leave and I'm going to my father's house. And if I go, I'm going to receive you to myself. He refers to heaven as his father's house. Remember, it says in my father's house are many dwelling places. There aren't lots of mansions in heaven. There's only one house. One big house with lots and lots of rooms. As a matter of fact, the disciples remember Psalm 69, verse 9. David wrote that psalm. There it says, because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The word zeal, by the way, is related to the word zealous or zealot. Another word for zeal is enthusiasm. The idea being Jesus is on fire. He is passionate. What are you passionate about? What do you really care about? What will cause you to get up and shout? I know on Thanksgiving Day when you're watching the team, some of you got up from your seat and you said, no! I felt that way when LSU lost in the last moments against Arkansas. Number one in the nation, shoe in for the Sugar Bowl. No! But what will it take for the apathy and the indifference to be lifted from the surface of your soul and you begin to care about the things of God? And you care about personal purity. You care about those things 
that defiled you. You are the temple of the Lord. What are you allowing in your temple? What's taking place inside of your heart? Do the things you allow, do they promote prayer and worship and a place of sanctity? Do the things you allow to go on in your temple, do they promote devotion or do they produce defilement? Would it shock you if the things you do that defile the temple might cause Jesus to show up and desire a little cleansing in your heart and in your life? Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, when he writes to Timothy and he says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and gentleness. Do you want personal purity in your life? Then forsake the things that are defiling you. Anyone can seem pure on the outside, but personal purity begins inside of the heart. Jesus, when he was talking to the religious leaders, he said, you scrub the outside, but inside you are like dead men's bones. And Jesus provokes the Jews. Look in verse 18. It says, so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? By the way, the Lord Jesus Christ demanded the temple be cleansed and true worship restored. I want you to think about that for just a moment. If someone shows up in your life and says, get right, get clean, worship God in spirit and in truth, do you go, what give you the right to talk to me like that? Instead of repenting of their impure practices and embracing true worship, you know what they did? They asked Jesus to give them a sign. The fact that Jesus cleansed the temple doesn't seem to be sign enough. They want more. In Mark chapter 8, verse 11, it says, Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, For the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. Isn't that interesting? Instead of a deep desire to change their heart, instead of a deep desire to change their lives, they want to see something visible, tangible, quantifiable. Prove to me that you're God. Prove to me that you're Jesus. Prove to me that you have the right to speak to me that way. <laughs> There's a saying. Seeing is believing. But in the Bible... In the New Testament, believing is seeing. You understand who he is. There are those who are constantly looking for a sign from God. Lord, if this is you, have Gino talk about the Broncos. Have Gino talk about the Rockies. Have Gino mention Mufalada. That's, by the way, an Italian sandwich from New Orleans. That has to be from God. How, how could he just possibly have made that up? 
Here's the problem with signs. Oh, Lord, if it's really you have a glowing ball of fire, go around the sanctuary. Lord, if it's really you have a have a quiver in my liver. Just have me. Yeah. Ooh, I'm feeling it now. I'm feeling the quiver in my liver. Oh, my hair is standing up on end. My palms are sweating. Here's the problem with signs. They're never enough. How many times does your hair have to stand on end? How many times does your stomach have to turn? How many balls of fire do you have to see roaming around the sanctuary before you'll go, you know what? This is kind of stupid. Why won't I simply take Jesus at his word? But look what Jesus does in verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Lord Jesus decides to give them a sign that the religious leaders don't want and don't understand. Don't be shocked and surprised the next time that you ask Jesus for a sign. He gives you a sign that you don't want and you don't understand. The language is interesting. Jesus uses the word naos. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this naos. What does that mean? It is the temple, the holy place, the place where deity dwells. And he says, that he will be handed over to the religious leaders for the destruction of his own body. Think about it. He will be scourged. He will be killed. And in three days, Jesus will raise it up. Look at that. Destroy this temple. And in three days, look what it says. I will raise it up. That expression, raise it up, is one Greek word. Egiro. It literally means to shake someone awake while they're sleeping. But it seems like it's a really dull sleep. I mean, have you ever at Thanksgiving had massive amounts of turkey, you know, turkey enchiladas, turkey burrito, turkey sandwich, turkey, turkey, turkey. It's sort of like foul ambien. What is that? What is that ingredient inside of it that makes you go to sleep? Yeah, tryptophan. You eat massive amounts of, of turkey and then all of a sudden you can't stay awake to save your life. You're there and you're just going. And someone rudely grabs you and goes, wake up. That's what's happening here. As a matter of fact, in the 141 times this expression appears in the New Testament, 70 times it is a direct reference to the resurrection. The reply that Jesus gives to the religious leaders goes right to the heart of his mission. Jesus will die for sins. Jesus will be raised from the dead. Jesus says, I will raise it up. By the way, did you know? That the New Testament says that God raised Jesus from the dead. The Bible says in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Here, Jesus raises himself from the dead. So who raised Jesus from the dead? The Father. The Son. And the Holy Spirit. 
But the Jews completely missed the metaphor. Look what it says in verse 20. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. You have to understand something. Herod the Great began building the additions to the temple in 19 B.C. The temple was for the most part complete during the Jesus's earthly ministry, but construction continued from 19 B.C. Forward to about 27 or 28 B.C., it would finally be completed in 64 A.D., just six years before the temple's destruction by the Roman army in 70 A.D. Josephus tells us that Herod employed some 18,000 people day and night for years. Now, if you've got 18,000 people working on a project for several years, how long do you think it's going to take for you to undo the project? The Lord Jesus would not restore the temple that was destroyed by the Romans. By the way, Herod's purpose in building the temple wasn't so much to facilitate worship, but to build a grand monument to his own majesty. When we build grand monuments to our own majesty, it doesn't do anything to excite worship in God. But before we fault the religious leaders too thoroughly, let's remind ourselves of another important point. The disciples, did the disciples get it? Did the disciples understand the metaphor? No. Look at verses 21 and 22. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. This is the third time, by the way, in chapter two, where the disciples remember. Or believe in in verse 11, the miracle of the water being changed into wine caused some to believe. In verse 17, the cleansing of the temple caused them to remember. But here in verse 22, the resurrection causes Jesus's disciples both to remember. And to believe. They understood something. That Jesus can cleanse the temple because he will rise from the dead and he's able to change you from the inside out. He's able to change everything about you. (laughs) Years later, after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, they fully understand the meaning of Jesus's words. Jesus, in his first public confrontation with the religious leaders, predicts his own death by their hands and his bodily resurrection. By the way, personal purity begins when you accept the death of Jesus on the cross. As punishment for your sins. When we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are created new. We we become new creatures. We are given a different standing in God's eyes. Personal purity begins when we are seen the way God sees us. Saved in Christ. And guess what? Over the course of our life, 
God then really changes us. He molds us and shapes us into the image of Jesus. Do you want to know the secret for personal purity? Do you want to know the secret of maturity? Stay close to Jesus. Walk with him. And look at verses 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Apparently, Jesus did something. They look like miracles. John calls them signs. Did Jesus respond to the religious leaders challenge to perform some authenticating miracles? I doubt it. We know that Jesus performed miracles. But look what the very next verse says. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and he had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in a man. By the way, the word translated commit in verse 24 is earlier translated believe in verse 23. The idea is that many believed in Jesus because they saw the sign, they saw the miracles, but their belief was superficial, it was shallow, it was temporal. They saw Jesus as a miracle machine, but not Lord and Savior. And some of you might have that same problem. Well, I know that Jesus is is the Lord, and I know that He does miracles, and I know that He changed the water into wine, and I know... That he raised, that he healed the sick and that he opened blind eyes and he opened deaf ears. He, he does miracles. He even gave me a miracle. But for whatever reason, for whatever reason, you don't walk with him in obedience and in purity. Bruce Milne writes, and I quote, Jesus of all people will not be misled by outward professions of loyalty, which do not involve true repentance and heart commitment. The claim to this knowledge of the human heart echoes Jeremiah 17:10. The heart of human beings are wicked, desperately wicked. Who can know them and is, is an implicit indicator of deity. Jesus knows what's going on inside of the human heart. And if you're. If yours is a superficial, if yours is a shallow, if yours is a temporal, if yours is something less than full commitment to Christ. He knows. He knows. Jesus didn't commit himself to them. Because their faith was the faith of the curious. And not the committed. You probably met people like that. You know, I'm curious about Christianity. I'm curious about Jesus. I'm curious about the Bible. You know, and I appreciate your curiosity about Jesus. And I appreciate your curiosity about the Bible. I appreciate that you're curious about Christianity. But Jesus will never make a commitment to you based on your curiosity. Jesus makes a commitment to you based on your commitment. A mutual commitment. They know Jesus. They know the miracles. They find it difficult to refute the claims described in the New Testament. They have faith, but it's not a saving faith. They're impressed with Jesus. But they're not willing to commit to Jesus. Have you ever ate food or drink water that was contaminated or polluted or defiled? 
It only takes a little bit of defilement in a glass of water. It only takes a little bit of defilement in a Thanksgiving dinner. Ooh, the yams look great. The potatoes look great. What is that in the stuffing? Why does it have eyes and tentacles? It doesn't look kosher. Are there things that you can put into your mouth that defile your whole body? The answer is yes. But the same is true of the soul. You can defile your soul with the immoral values of this world. We pollute our souls. We love money and we become greedy. We lust. We become sexually immoral. But Jesus wants more than simply joy at the beginning of the chapter. He wants cleansing by the end of the chapter. By the way, living in a polluted, impure world is very difficult. But when you have a heart filled with the Holy Spirit, there's not much room for pollution. A pure life brings blessings. That's what it says in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. If you get a chance, read Psalm 119, verses 1 through 20. We discover something. Living by God's word will help you stay pure. And remember, purity starts in the heart. That's what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Real purity isn't for show. It isn't simply the externals. Give up what hinders purity. That's what it says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Keep your thoughts pure. That's what it says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Understand something. God wants you to be pure. In Titus chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes a remarkable verse. He says to the pure... All things are pure. Are you looking at the good? Are you looking at the pure? Are you looking for reasons to believe or for reasons to disbelieve? Are you looking for reasons to continue in skepticism, hypocrisy, and impurity? You'll find them. But if Jesus shows up, whip in hand, Understand something. It isn't because he hates you. It's because he loves you. By the way, what is the whip? What is that scourge? It's those things that sting and hurt. There's certain things that Jesus asks you to give up. And it hurts. But guess what? After the cleansing comes personal purity and obedience. Now you'll be glad you did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that that when Jesus shows up with whip in hand, that Lord, we would embrace the changes that you have for us. The changes that you want to take place in our head and our heart. The change towards obedience and personal purity so that we could experience your presence, your power, your worship. 
Lord, we thank you that Jesus brings joy. But we also thank you that Jesus brings cleansing. And purity. Lord, we see that the picture that is given to us in the New Testament is a Jesus who wants to change us. Not on the basis of our willpower, but on the basis of his resurrection power. That Jesus will come back from the dead and give us life and come into us into our heart and change us and change the way we think and change the way we speak and change the way we live. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.